And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 280 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. How you doing this week, Brian? Ooh, busy week. For yeah. real. Yeah. Yeah, there are all kinds of shenanigans this week. Uh, I had no time. Comic books didn't get delivered. Like, all kinds of fun things happened, yeah. I am recording fresh off of our first stumble through of Heather's. We put it all together for the first time, which I'm always a fan because like you get to see it for the first time and it always feels like it's in better shape than you thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, oh, wow, this actually, we actually did do a lot of good work on this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that was fun. That's a highlight to this week. Still a lot of work to do before we open, but uh, there we go. And yeah, I didn't get comics until Friday evening, so I read what I could. Yeah, we're, this is this is, um, this might be a little bit of a quick episode for us. That's fingers right. crossed because I still right. have to edit, and it's Sunday night. Well, Maze book, go. Maze book number one, written, arted, and colored by Jeff Lemire, with letters by Steve Wands. So we have talked about this book uh, a couple of times. We talked about it in previews or in solicitations, and then again last week. Uh, This is the one about a man who lost his daughter. We don't really know what she died to, but she passed away, and he's dealing with, like, the grief of 10 years later not being able to remember her face, but remembering this, like, ratty sweater of his that she stole and used to wear all the time. And he kind of goes through the motions of his life and eventually one day gets a phone call saying, hey, I'm in the center. Come find me, daddy. And that's actually this whole issue. (laughs) Okay. The the premise of the series is the first issue. And like the pacing is, I think, what really stands out here. Like Lemire's art, Lemire has a very specific style. I think if you are, if you have seen his art before, you know kind of visually what you're getting into here. But the thing he does so well is just taking his time, building out this main character and like where he's at, what sort of his emotional life is, all of those kinds of beats. And it's it's really well executed. Like it's a very sort of intimate book. That's it. That's all I have to say. That's Go the, read that's, it. That's it was great. It. Okay, cool. Yeah. Moving on, Black Manta number one, written by Chuck Brown, art by Valentin Delandro, colors by Marissa Louise, and letters by Clayton Cowles. What did you think of this, Brian? Uh, it is not what I expected. No. Um, it's like, I don't even know if I know how to describe this book. Um, so let me start here. Let me start here, because there's one thing that really stood out to me. Uh-huh. It is so intentionally written to like pull out any dialogue that is not necessary. 
That is absolutely true. Yeah. And I think when I say that, that sounds like, well, it's a really tight book. No, I mean, like, this is a book that uses literally the bare minimum of words to get an idea across and lets the art and the storytelling in it and the colors do the rest of the work. It's a very collaborative way of, like, the writer standing back. And I really dug it. Yeah, that I, I really enjoyed that as well. Um, it, it, like I said, it was just, I, I'm not even sure exactly what I'm supposed to be getting out of this yet. <laughs> It it seems to both it seems to mostly track through kind of two geographic places, two two plot lines, like maybe in simultaneity with each other. One of which is Black Manta kind of doing his thing, dealing with a heist, where you see him like have what almost reads as like a sudden migraine, right? Like sudden shooting pain, much like the Spider Sense from Dark Ages last week. Yes, yeah. yeah. And the other plot line is kind of maybe explaining what the cause of that is. Maybe. But you don't really get the connection other than is there some, like, genetic component? Is there some sort of, like, bloodline ancestral component? Like, are all these people tied together for for some reason? Are they somehow linked familially? Right. Um, all these people who are affected in the way Black Manta is. And and then there's this kind of phrasing um, from a from like a narrative type standpoint where it's kind of written as a letter from him to Jackson. Mm -hmm. Right. Where he's saying, you know, kind of the if you're reading this, then I'm probably dead kind of thing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but maybe not. Maybe <laughs> I just. Uh, yeah. Um it, it, it's not hanging on that. Like that's not a big thing. And I liked how soft that touch was. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like that is there to support kind of the opening question of the book. Who is black Manta? Right. Yeah. Like of all the different histories he's had father, killer, murderer, or killer and murderer, I guess are the same thing. Father, plunderer, murderer, whatever. Like, what really is at the core of him? What drives him? Why is he those things? Yeah, and like he mentions whatever the... And there, there, there is one big reason to suspect that this may be some sort of like genetic or familial type thing in that he says something to the effect of your Zebel blood should render you immune to this. Or, yeah. You know, not susceptible to it. So there's definitely a... a yeah. And... This character that comes at the end of this very, very much seems like some sort of, you know, um, god type figure, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's an Atlantean god or a Olympian type god, it's something. And, and I don't think we're supposed to know what yet. No, I, like, her hair almost looks like it's made of, of like, the bubbles that break over rocks in waves. Yeah, like, like sea foam, right? That's it, yeah. Yeah. Like a very cool character and I have no clue no clue at all who she is. Yeah, clearly some sort of if it is like a deity or a spirit or something then like definitely there's some vengeance in there or in some shape or form. Yeah. I'm so I, here for it though. I'm so ready for more. Yeah, yeah. No, I very much enjoyed it and I definitely want more and 
I'm interested to see how this is actually going to start pulling into a story. How about the Green Lantern 2021 oh. annual? Oh. Written by Ryan oh. Cady, art by Sammy Bosry and Tom Derenick, colors by Hi-Fi, and letters by Rob Lee. Maybe the single issue you and I have both been waiting for the most since Future State? I, I, I think that's very, very possible. And holy crap, did it pay off. I mean, highlight for me, watching Jess put Hal in his place. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I need to remind my mentor, my former mentor, uh, that he needs to do his fucking job. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love this because, uh, I mean, first of all, it does give us the reason of how Jess becomes a Yellow Lantern, right? Yeah. Um, and it's it's not exactly it, it was done very differently than what I kind of expected. I liked it. Yeah. Um. So you know, the from from Future State, we saw her, um, basically without a ring of any kind, right? Like finish off these three yellow lanterns that came for her in the she, safe house. She very much John McClaned it. Yes, exactly. Um, and puts on the yellow ring to to take them back and to get back home to earth. She knows that's the only way she can do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, turn, turns out not all, one of them may have been playing possum. <laughs> <laughs> Little or, bit. or, you know, big, sexy blue lady possum. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, when she gets to new Korgar and confront, I, first of all, I also love, that she and this happens actually twice this week is uh people show up on new Korgard to, to with Sinestro and like talk to him <laughs> instead of just you know starting a fight it was yeah. very refreshing Sinestro's the rare kind of weird villain for me who I'm normally not a big fan of the Let's dig into a villain's backstory and explain why they're tortured and why should why we should sympathize with them even though they're terrible. Mm -hmm. Kind of like prequel nonsense. But there, I think because it's not from a place of prequel, because it's just what this character has evolved as, there's something about Sinestro that's like, you've seen him try to be good by, like, traditional moral standards and that has not worked for him right. and you've seen him try to do it by his own means and that has not worked for him and there is something about this this version of him who's like very smart and very capable but keeps running into the practicality of like his own the impracticality of his own overreach yeah you know, you know what kind of reminds me of i i <laughs> Weird, but the same kind of thing is, you know, I'm like, you know, um, socialism is is an absolutely fantastic form of government in theory. <laughs> it just doesn't work in the real world because people are awful. <laughs> right. And I think that's I think that's kind of what Sinestro runs into is that his belief and what he wants to accomplish is. Like, the idea behind it isn't necessarily bad. It's just what has to happen in the real world for it to actually work is not not okay. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the Marvel parallel this week in my mind, uh, if you've got on the DC side Sinestro, on the Marvel side you have Beast. 
I feel like these two characters are currently occupying a very similar space. Yeah. And I, and I want to say Sinestro has very much evolved into this. You know, back in the mm-hmm. 70s, he was very much just the, the, the villain, right? He was just the bad guy. Yeah. I love this far, far, far more complex version yeah. of him. I think it's a much better character. Well, and I think the practical like version of that that we see here is his own internal motivations aside. Mm-hmm. He can look to Jess and say, okay, but you're good at this. You have potential. And whether or not you look at me as a villain or a monster or your enemy, you can approach this from a place of empathy and seek out those who are fearful to help them. Yeah. Well, and I think it's part of... It's part of Sinestro is that he is a fantastic leader and he recognizes not just talent, but talent that is different than his own, Mm -hmm. which makes his core stronger. Right. And I think that's what I like so much about his role in Mm -hmm. this. I don't think that's a gimmick. I don't think that's a Mm -hmm. trick or a feint or saying the right thing. I think that's really like, no, you'd be a good fit here. Do this your way. Yeah, yeah. Now, I am hopeful. You would, you would doing things the way that you want to do them and accomplishing what you want will still help us accomplish the goals that I have set. Now, I am hopeful that Jess's way means eventually Jess becomes leader of the Sinestro Corps. That would well, be that's a whole different, yeah. wild for me and I would love it. <laughs> but but yeah, so she so essentially what he does is uh, he says, you know, yeah, he makes her an offer and she's like, no, I don't think I can do that. And he's like, all right, fine. But the only way you can get back to Earth is to take this ring and, and use it to get there, to get to Earth. And then when I assign a yellow lantern for Sector 2814, you can just give this ring to them. Yeah. <laughs> he knows exactly what he's doing. <laughs> No doubt. So he sends her and she comes across this thing. And that's when she has a run in with Howl. And during this basically comes to realize that, no, she can do good with a yellow ring. Yeah. Yeah. Like at first she makes a mistake and then she realizes, wait, no, I wasn't like, I was kind of trying to do this like as a Green Lantern using a yellow ring. Like, let me actually use my connection to why people are afraid and figure out like oh th- pirates have taken over this ship yes i put the wrong person in charge this is a problem let me fix it yep yeah and i will i'll give credit to how where credit is due he does recognize that okay yeah she messed up but she fixed it also so anyway, yeah there's that but then yeah but then he's how so. yeah like of the Green Lanterns who I, I, I enjoy seeing get theirs. I mean, Guy Gardner is always number one on the sure. list. But I like when someone puts Hal in his place. Like, Hal's so cocky. Can I also say how much I love the artwork of her yellow lantern like constructs? Like the things. character design or just the, and, and, the and, constructs and just, like, in general? like the flowing tendrils of yellow yeah. that are always there. Yeah. I mean... Shout out to Sammy Bosry and Tom Derenick both in this book and like hi-fi for sort of bridging the gap between them. I love the style of this book. Yeah. yeah. I love how confident she is in this by the end of it too. Yeah. Especially given <laughs> remembering Jess when she started and the fact that she couldn't even make a construct <laughs> <laughs> because she was so afraid. 
I mean, the the arc for Jess, especially in like as short a time as she has existed, mm-hmm. which is like five or six years. Yep. Going from getting the Earth Three Power Ring to breaking free of it and getting a regular Green Lantern ring. To like fighting Volthum, going back in time, getting one of the original Green Lantern rings, to now being a Yellow Lantern, like it's so many jumps, mm-hmm. but they're all jumps that have been, I think, really well rooted in her character and have given her room to grow as a character. Well, and that's just that they have all been uh, steps that have evolved and grown her, right? Yeah, when, none of them feels. None of them feels just like someone trying to figure out a take on her. They all feel really like earned and organic. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic book. I cannot wait to see more of of her. Same. Give just her own ongoing in 2022 challenge. Mm-hmm. Infinite Frontier, number six, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Hermonico, colors by Romulo Fayardo Jr., and letters... By Tom Napolitano. I don't even know what the hell to think coming out of this. <laughs> you know, would you like to know my first thought when I finished this issue? What's that? Did Did Josh Williamson write this just for Brian? <laughs> I might have. <laughs> this feels like so specifically in your wheelhouse. It It, it absolutely is, which is why I, I like I said, I'm not sure. I mean, I know how I feel. I feel very excited and happy, but I'm also like, what the fuck does in here this mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we we have the we have the big showdown and all of that, and you know, the we we find out that what um what apocalypse is after is he wants Barry to dark side. What did I say? Apocalypse. Oh. <laughs> That's the other menacing blue guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Yikes. Uh what Darkseid wants is for Barry to crack the door to the omniverse. Right? Which is the multiverses of multiverses, right? Now we're getting you know, we're, we're we're now going into three dimensional multiverses. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um and uh, you know, the Justice Incarnate essentially stops him before, but kind of, kind of before that happens, right? Um, and uh, everybody gets sent back to their respective worlds, uh, by by Dark Side at the end of this, and he says we need to find. For, well, first of all, Psycho Pirate who was doing this for him, right? <laughs> the best. Out. The best exit light. This is what I thought would be your quote of the week. <laughs> yeah, let me go find it real quick. Where was it? Yeah. <laughs> he literally just fades away and says, I'm needed in another event. <laughs> that alone is worth the price of admission for this entire miniseries. Like okay, Psycho Pirates uh, gotta go. He's he's some he, he's he's been booked for another gig and for another uh, crisis event of some sort. Like I feel like off paddle. He had just hung up on a phone call with Grant Morrison. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Um, 
Yeah, so they all end up, like I said, back at a... Okay, how much did you like Chase in this little scene with her and Roy? A lot. Like, the two of them, just in general, in that scene. Like, I loved them both, but this idea of Chase now running the DEO... Yeah. With this perspective, I feel like in a way... If you could argue that this miniseries was about moving one specific character into a new status quo, Mm -hmm. I think that character is Cameron Chase. And maybe Roy, depending on how they spin this. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely momentum for Roy and for a lot of others. Yeah. But Cameron Chase learns we and she meet an alternate universe version of her. Mm -hmm. But she comes out of this with the perspective that says, you know... I was kind of paralyzed before by the idea of there are all these Cameron chases in existence. What if I'm not one of the best? But now after all of this, I have to ask the question, what if I am the best? Yeah. Well, and like, it it gives us a little like super small four panel thing of like her as a soldier and her dead and Mm -hmm. her with a family and her in a straight jacket, like all of these different ones. And yeah. And the question she says is, you know, I had a question, you know, met all of these different, some good, some bad, whatever said, but then the thought occurred to me, what if there's an, what if there's a great chase version of chase out there? And that version is me. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool thought. I like that. If I uh, may borrow a line from Ted Lasso, I don't think you realize just how emotionally healthy that is. <laughs> so, yeah, then uh, so then we kind of see the aftermath of, of Darkseid here, where he says, okay, so I've got to gather my resources together because there's... <laughs> There's an event coming. Maybe that's where. Uh, maybe that's where Psycho Pirate was headed. Yeah. Um. What What do they call it? Play a role in the coming wars, right? Um. And it talks about how his family will play a role, and it's the it's the apocalypse, right? It's Granny Goodness and uh, uh, uh Desaad and Grail and yep. uh, Calabac and Calabac is there. Yep. Steppenwolf. Yeah. That's the one um, I was trying to come up with. And then we get, um, he's like, and then there's others that, that I need to gather because this place, this world, which is, um, Earth Omega, right? It's not really a planet. <laughs> it's the remnants of a living being. Mm-hmm. Um, and he shows, um, uh, uh, the upside down man. Yep. And Eclipso. <laughs> yep. And uh, uh, who is the uh, 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 the Black Lantern guy? Uh, uh, Necron. Necron, yeah. And it's like, oh, so you're talking like all of the big heavy crisis, hit, you know, event hitters. Yeah. Yeah, holy cow. Um, then we get the part that, which is where it blows my mind. So we're going to talk about this for a moment. <laughs> before we do, before we do. Yeah. If this if this world is a body, do do we have any guesses? Oh, it's the anti monitor. Oh, okay. That's I I am I am. As soon as he said that, I was like, oh my god, it's the anti monitor. That is admittedly where my brain went to, but there is yeah. a part of me. There is a part of me, Brian. Mm-hmm. A part of me that sometimes speaks in Jin's voice that said, but what if Galactus? 
<laughs> what if a celestial? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then we get, um, and, and this was so, done so intentionally, we get the epilogue, which is Flash, who it turns out did break through this crack yep. unintentionally. And it's very much reminiscent of the first time that he actually ran between worlds to Earth 2. Um, and he falls and cracks and everything and looks up. And when he looks up, the sky is filled with an infinite number of Earths that are merging and crashing into each other, but which is 100% from the crisis event, the original and, crisis on Infinite Earth. And that's because he is in Multiverse 2. Yeah. And as if we weren't certain that that's what this was, a character shows up to confirm that that is exactly what the hell this is because Pariah is there. Oh, oh, there was a there was a little girl squeal that came out of me when I turned the page and saw Pariah. You know, I think I heard it. I think I heard it from across town. And then, um, then Pariah touches him and says something about um, uh, and it's time that we moved on, stopped apologizing for the past, and let the real multiverse truly live. And he touches Flash, and Flash goes through the disintegration that he went through in Crisis on Infinite Earths when he died, and then shows up in a very, very 50s-style comic book page. Labeled Earth Flash 1. Which is Earth Flash 1, where his mom is alive, and Iris is there, and Wally is there, and Jay is there, and they're all happily having dinner. Um, Terrifying. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, wow. Okay. To be continued in Justice League Incarnate number one. Yeah, Justice League Infinite. No, Justice nope. League. No, Incarnate. Incarnate, you're right, yeah, yeah, you're right. Justice League Infinity is the continuation is the, of Justice yeah. League Unlimited. Right, correct, 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 correct. Oh my gosh, so good though. Oh my god. I, I, like, I, ha I also think this is going to end up being bigger than I originally thought it was going to be. Like, this has the potential to do a lot of shifting for the yeah. DC Universe status quo. And again, like, from a very structural standpoint, I really dig this idea of like, Every few months, we'll put out a miniseries that kind of deals with the big omniversal lore without, like, pulling every book into it and spinning out tons of tie-ins and miniseries. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, I like that this is almost its kind of contained thing that still feels like it is a part of the same world and affects everyone and everything. Yeah, we will see. Over to Suicide Squad. Now, Brian, you read both of these. Which one comes first, the annual or the number annual seven? The annual absolutely comes first. Okay, that is what I thought. That is the one I read, and we will start there. It was written by Robbie Thompson, with art by Eduardo Pansica and Julio Ferreira and Dexter Soy, colors by Chris Sotomayor, and letters by Wes Abbott. So, I forget where this conversation took place, if it was on an episode of Men of Steel or just somewhere else. But I was, or maybe it was when he was on Panelology, but I was talking to Case mm -hmm. about Bizarro and Superboy. And I asked the question, because I, I was sure it had to have existed already at some point. 
if Superboy is a clone, Connor, mm-hmm. and Bizarro is a clone, like, I want to see some story that's like Superboy and Bizarro or Superboy and his own Bizarro. Like, what does that clone of a clone look like? <laughs> and Case's response to me was to like, point me toward an annual, I think it was like Superboy annual number three or something like that. Yep. Um, I mean, yeah. I don't know the number, but whatever. Yeah. But yes, I know. What but he he pointed about. me yeah. toward one one annual that was like part of the year one crossover and all that jazz. Uh and it wasn't on Comicsology or DC Universe Unlimited or anything like that. So I never got around to reading it. Then this issue came along, mm-hmm. and it filled it filled that Bizarro Connor hole in my heart. Yeah, I was gonna say the name is Match, and not Matches Malone. That's a no. Um. This is, again, like, we kind of knew going forward, like, what this book was about. And I think if you saw the cover art, like, very explicitly, the covers, the, the A cover says, hey, this is about Connor and clones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I think the flavor of, like, how does Connor, who's been in this book, find out about clones and what is his relationship to those clones? I think that is a surprise. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I, that this book did, which I really, really like is Amanda Waller is a great, I, I think, I think Amanda Waller is a really good character. I think mm-hmm. one of the problems she has is it's often really hard to say, what is it she's trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Right. Like you have her general motivation, right? Oh yeah. I'm trying to protect the world by doing things that other people won't kind of thing. Right. But like, okay. So what does that mean? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? And one of the things that we have right now with Robbie Thompson is he has given her a very clear goal of what yeah. she is trying to do and told us what it is. She wants to save an earth. Yes. And it turns out that because ours doesn't like her and, doesn't want her to save us this way. She's going to go find a different Earth <laughs> and save that one. <laughs> yeah. It's a good plan. Hey. <laughs> In an infinite multi infinite multiverse, there's got to be one that wants Amanda Waller. There you go. Um but yeah, so and all of the machinations that she's doing right now are to accomplish that. And yeah. then I love how they have also sp- Split and schismed this team in in varying degrees. The other side of that coin, too, I feel like at least the end of the annual, and maybe Seven gives context that I don't have. Yeah. But feels like there's also now one element that kind of gives the team someone to rally around in the form of Connor. Yeah. Especially, like, Nocturna. I like the side that, like, Nocturna has this soft spot for him. Yes. Is there some history there? Because I don't know Nocturna. Um, I don't, I don't really know her very well either. But I, I know that the Nocturna from Earth Zero was pretty awful. Okay. Um, but I really like this one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, yeah. Um. But, like, the whole Rick Flag thing, right? The Rick Flag thing is very exciting to me. Like, like one of the best uses for that character I have, we've seen in a long time, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Yeah. Um, I yeah. like that this take on him leans more toward optimist than just soldier. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's almost like, uh, and he talks about that. He said, you know, 
that certainly at the start it was personal for Amanda and it's personal for me. It's just personal for us in different ways. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's almost like, okay, yeah, I'm going to take everything that I've learned by being the field leader for task force X. And now I'm going to, now I'm going to graduate up to the next level and show what that means. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause he's putting together his own team. He is. He's he's gonna force Amanda Waller to take a long look in the mirror. <laughs> Which, if you have Mirror Master on your team, is very dangerous proposition. <laughs> yeah, more of a threat than like a growth yeah, opportunity, right. really. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this. I like it. I like. Yeah, it. this annual was just. We've talked about how like neither of us before the the Tom Taylor run was a big Suicide Squad person. And while this is such a different flavor of Suicide Squad, I'm still so invested in it. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm yeah. glad for that. I think I think Robbie Thompson has found a way to 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 put these characters in a in situations that make them compelling and make a good story. Agreed. Not just a oh look, we've got these bad people that we can kill if we want to. Yeah, <laughs> which has often been the Suicide Squad. Now, Tell me about number seven. Then we come to number seven, which has one of my favorite characters. So, before there was Deadpool. <laughs> well, before there was Deadpool. In a world before Deadpool. We had the one of the original fourth wall breaking characters. And that was Ambush Bug. Damn straight it was. The fact that he still exists in canon in the DC universe is one of the things that makes me happier than anything else. <laughs> um, and Amanda Waller recruits him because she needs a teleporter for a mission that she's about to do. The problem is Ambush Bug does know. Uh, he does break the fourth. He very much reminds me, even more so than Deadpool, of, of Gwenpool and how mm. she understands breaking the fourth wall. Like, he knows they're in a comic book, right? And yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, oh, right, we're going to be doing this. Oh, wait, sorry, that's spoilers. That doesn't, that doesn't happen until later in the issue. <laughs> um, and um, says something about, and then we then we had we had the fact that um he references another character which I didn't know anybody else still knew actually had ever existed, and he says um that's right when you need a real hero and a real villain there's only one hero slash villain you can call, and since Amazing Man was booked they called in years truly. <laughs> <laughs> Because Ma Amazing Man is apostrophe M-A-Z-I-N-G, right? Yep. And so it's always the very first series that's in my collection alphabetically. <laughs> nice. So I like always, when I'm, I'm doing anything with my collection, I always just see Amazing Man and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm so happy that Ambush Bug referenced him. <laughs> um but yeah, and then he gets on and we get, you know, the other thing that Ambush Bug does besides teleport is he can kind of, uh, much, also much like Deadpool, um, kind of take on the appearance of other characters, but still very much in Ambush Bug form, right? So, um, and of course, because it's Suicide Squad, 
we essentially get a ambush Harley at one point. <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. Which is, which is kind of beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. And he tells, uh, he tells all of the people that, yeah, you you know, Waller's been messing with your heads, right? Like right now we're just in a simulation. <laughs> You're not really <laughs> here. <laughs> so like, it's just all fantastic. And then uh, the, turns out that the mission that she needs him for is because she is sending them to hell, literally to hell, to fetch the Rock of Eternity. I was going to ask if the Rock of Eternity factors in when you said hell. And now, if a Suicide Squad team went to hell, who do you think they just might run into that might have bad feelings towards Suicide Squad? Uh, Deadshot? Maybe all the people that were on Suicide Squad that got killed because they were on Suicide Squad. I mean, I thought you were going for a specific answer, nope. but yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Or uh, or Hell Squad, as they call themselves. Cool. Yes. This should be fun. I'm very comics happy. are weird, and I love it. I know. I know. I'm I, I'm I'm having fun with this, and I like it. The Me You Love in the Dark number two. Written by Scotty Young, with art by Jorge Corona, colors by Jean-Francois Boyou, and letters by Nate Piecos. I just wanted to touch on this one kind of quickly, because we both dug number one, but also neither of us knew tonally where this book was going. And I think we get, like, a little bit of it here. There's something kind of uncomfortable and uneasy and foreboding. Yeah, there's something that makes you wary because everything is just a little too nice, right? It doesn't become overtly sinister, but it's definitely like before a nightmare breaks into a nightmare. Right. And one of the things I like is he is Scotty is not rushing this. Um, no. It, it's, it's just kind of a real pleasant little read right now. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, there's a little bit of conversation between Ro and the house. Mm -hmm. And then here's Ro just kind of going about her business and, like, processing. Mm -hmm. And you get these little moments of, like, her being maybe a little uncomfortable the first time she takes a shower. Because is the house watching? No, I'm not watching. Clearly the house is listening, and that's a little weird. Uh, well, it, I mean... Do we know, is this ghost's name Alexa? Because that was... <laughs> uh, yes, it's all a metaphor for the surveillance state. You're right, Brian. Of course, it's much more sinister than I realized. There you go. <sighs> it is the truest of horror. You wanted a horror book. Here it is. <laughs> Woof. Um, no, but that's the thing is... Like you really, you really like this creature, the spirit, this entity. How's that entity? Sorry, well, yeah, yeah. But, but, but it is uneasy. Uneasy is also the right like, word. It's clearly nice. You don't know yet if it's good. Uh, yeah, right. That, that's yeah. That's that's appropriate. Yeah. Um. But I just, I just like this. And I like that she doesn't just instantly go, right, like, oh, this is awesome. Da, da, da. Like, it's very much a, I don't want to say, a, it sounds stupid saying a real world reaction, right? But it's very much a, an appropriate reaction in 
she's hesitant about this at first and, you know, starts with real small conversations and then develops more and more of a, of trust with this entity. Yeah. And I, I like that, that it's being handled so slowly. Cause I think that's going to make when something does happen, which, you know, it's going to have to, I don't know what it's going to be, but you know, something's going to have to happen. Oh Yeah. Um, and when it does, I think it's going to make it all the more meaningful that it was this. Yeah. Also, just, it's gorgeous. Like, again, Jorge Corona and Jean-Francois Beaulieu, their art looks amazing. And those little moments that sell the issue, mm-hmm. like, are so much on their shoulders. And, yeah, and I'm not going to say the final panel, other than to say it gave me a very um, Doctor Strange vibe. Yeah. Right, she's accidentally rented Bleecker Street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, on the subject of horror comics, we have Dead Box number one, written by Mark Russell, with art by Benjamin Tiesma, colors by Vladimir Popoff, letters by Jim Campbell, and design by Tim Daniel. How, how is this? Because I did not get a chance to pick this up and read it. I dug this. Now, here is here is my thesis for this segment. I am not sure until this week I have truly understood how thin the line between satire and horror is. Especially when, if you take Mark Russell's writing sensibilities, mm-hmm. this is explicitly sold as a horror book. And sometimes it feels like that, and sometimes it doesn't. I think by the end, very clearly, there are some beats that are like, especially in kind of a... a Twilight Zone sort of way, like narrative, an ongoing narrative framed around that kind of of anthology concept. Because the Dead Box has all these movies in it, and you watch them, and they affect you in some way thematic with them, seems to be the premise. Okay. But then there are these moments that feel like they could be out of any Mark Russell book, where you see, like, this stretch of highway, and there's this billboard, and it says something like, Freedom Highway, 20 miles, no speed limits, no seatbelts, just freedom. And, like, that could have been in Prez, that could have been in the Flintstones, that could be in Not All Robots. Yeah. And Not All Robots, which is, like, build a satire and feels very Flintstones-y, like, which also came out this week, the second issue, has some moments that are, like, more explicitly horrifying than anything in this horror comic. <laughs> um, at least in the first issue. If anyone could expose that line between satire and horror, Mark Russell seems like a very good choice. Right? Like, yeah, it's yeah. it's not a continuum I ever have placed narrative on. And clearly, like, it's a function of tone and the tools you use and composition on the page. Like, Mike Deodato oh, yeah, Jr. Yeah, yeah. in Not All Robots has, like, very inky, claustrophobic kind of compositions. Benjamin Tiesma here has, like, part of it's the setting in here. It's yeah. this run-down, like, small town. But the art kind the art reflects that, right? Like, it feels worn. It feels weathered. It it carries that same sort of Well, just like other decay. mediums. Yeah, just like other mediums, there are certain things that you, that, that evoke a, a horror setting in comics, just like, you know, in movies, you've got the music and the, yeah and the lighting and the, and same thing with comics. Sure. Yeah. Um, and there's like some explicit body horror that you get at the end here. 
but also sometimes like the 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 sci-fi film that comes out of the dead box that this issue is framed around like is this very mark russell earth and this alien planet that's 200 light years away or 200 years away by spaceship uh connect with each other and they want to meet an earthling so earth finds a way to get to near light speed travel and send someone to this planet and after the 50 years it takes him to get there by his own like perception of time he's been i mean imagine quarantining for a year and a half he's been quarantined for 50 years and it's just like filthy and incoherent and feral like going back to rehearsal right now like i feel like i barely know how to be around people 50 years of that and like this society is built around table manners oh shit okay it's just the it plays so much with like form and narrative and structure even internal to an issue and genre internal to an issue that like it's very mark russell it's also like what what is the difference between horror and satire like that's so much i think what this book is about i like it i like it already i can't wait to read this yeah. all right is it still good not all robots number two i think i kind of just covered this <laughs> uh it's excellent uh it's bleak it's horrifyingly realistic uh dark blood number two this one actually came out a couple of weeks ago but my comic shop was shorted Ah. So I'm going to talk about it now because it's good. Uh, This is more of kind of Aldridge's past and how he comes into possession of or presumably will come into possession of the power that we see him with in issue one. But this is all set in that six months leading up to his getting it. Eve number five. uh, This is the end of this miniseries. It's really satisfying. I think there is maybe a comic reader out there who might say, well, that was a little easy. But one, for the characters, like, contextually, no, it's not. But the point of the story, and Victor Lavelle, like, writes a little letter at the end of this similar to the one he had at the end of the first issue. Like, part of his inspiration for this was watching Battle of the Planets as a kid. And, like, one, seeing kids save the world, but also, like, seeing that it's possible to save the world. Like, he wanted an ending for this that, like, very much was that, that very much was rooted in at least potential success. That was not just bleak. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I dug it. Mamo, number three. Uh, Orla and Joe continue tracking down Mamo's bones, and... uh we learned that maybe maybe Joe has a little more talent for magic than anybody realized. Batman number one twelve, Brian. Uh we get um Batman coming out of his um state with with Scarecrow and reconnecting to Barbara and kind of catching up on what has happened while he was out of commission. His fear state? Huh? His fear state, yes. He said coming out of his state, his fear state. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so technically, I guess he's just going into fear state because this is like the first issue that's part of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. Wow. It is. It's been a long week. Uh, <laughs> and that's yeah, just today. So, so um, we... Uh, it, it it just sets up the, ne- the next pieces of this. Um, yeah. And we find out that Simon Saint has... Uh, a ace in his hole, uh, in so far as a backup peacekeeper. Yeah. Uh, and then we have a another backup, which is a part one of three of Clown Hunter, 
which I, I really dug this. Yeah, I did too. I'm, I'm, I like that character. I like how conflicted and new that character feels. Anyway, yeah. Okay. Also, Brandon Thomas. Brandon Thomas did that backup, and yep. like he has not missed yet. Nope. Batman Catwoman number seven, Brian. Um, Dick arrests Selena for the murder of Joker, and um. Her daughter really questions why her dad and Selena, like, how did that work? <laughs> Crush and Lobo. Yeah. Crush and Lobo number four. To uh, prove that she's not her father, Crush has to uh, be very much like her father. Green Lantern number six, Brian. Uh, our other trip to New Korrigar by Lanterns this week. Um, and. Uh, Joe really impresses Sinestro such that he makes her an offer also. (laughs) (laughs) Justice League Infinity number three, Brian. Um, yeah, this is kind of fun zaniness in very much in the spirit of uh, the multiverse crossover stuff going on in Infinite Frontier right now. The Swamp Thing number seven. Uh, Levi has offered a chance to let go of all the pain in his past, but realizes that maybe that's that it's necessary for him to hold on to it if he's going to move forward through it. The six sidekicks of Trigger Keaton, number four, Brian. Uh, we meet the last of our sidekicks, uh, and they get brought into this, uh, this hunt. Uh, and just the interaction between these characters is just really, really good. Champions number nine, uh, Kamala Khan rocks the cradle. Excalibur number 23, Captain Britain helps Doom get some stuff back from his ex. X-Force number 23, Beast just can't leave well enough alone. And, uh, Black Tom Cassidy is about to have to go on a fantastic voyage. Oh boy. And finally, Witchblood number six. Maybe you shouldn't let vampires drink from a god. Brian's face implied that he had something to say to that, but. I just. just yeah, I mean, don't <laughs> read from the book. <laughs> don't go into the house. Don't let vampires drink from a god. That's. Those all sound like, you know, wise things to live by. Excuse me while I go work on my Ghostbusters Blade crossover. <laughs> All right, this week's books. We have the rare non-number one on this list. Batman Urban Legends number seven, which is kind of a special issue of this. It is all looking at future timelines in Batman continuity. Yeah. Uh, The main feature here, which is written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, with Max Dunbar on art, uh, colors by Sebastian Chang and letters by Aditya Bidikar is answering a question I have had since Future State. What happens to Terry McGinnis? Because <laughs> um, I am convinced, like, his world can't exactly exist in the future of Earth Zero now. So I'm excited to see that. We also have stories from Kenny Porter and Guillaume Singalin. Uh, with art by Juan Ferreira, Baltimar Rivas, and Guillaume Singelin. Uh I don't know who's doing which of these, but one is a post-apocalyptic Dark, dark Knight story. One is a Cassandra Kane story set in the Future State timeline. And one checks in on Batman One Million. What if 
infinite what if that end of infinite frontier is just a way of saying you know what anything we want to write it just exists in a world i mean that was yeah that was the end of death metal it, it was but like even more explicitly right like a oh okay then maybe this is just batman beyond one or Batman Beyond 2. Fair. Or, and I it's mean, a, you know what, to a point where DC is going to say, we don't care how it ex- how to explain how this exists anymore. Just know that it, if we want to write it, it does. I think that's exactly where we're at already. Yeah. Um, I'll also say this in like a really wonky continuity way. The only Batman Beyond series that's ever been set in the future of Earth Zero is the, was it Dan Jurgens series from right before Rebirth and through Rebirth? Um, all other Batman Beyond series are already on an alternate Earth that's accounted for in the multiversity map. Yeah. So this may just be touching in on that Earth. Who knows? Anyway. Yeah. Uh, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly know. Well, they know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And next week we'll know. Next week, we'll know. I am Batman, number one. We talked about the Zero issue. The series begins in earnest this week. Written by John Ridley, with art by Olivier Coipel, colors by Alex Sinclair, and letters by Troy Pateri. Get on that good Jace Fox train. (laughs) I'm sure there's a joke in there, but I don't know what it is, so I don't know what to get. I will leave that joke for cleverer people than I. Titans United, number one. Admittedly, Brian, I put this one on the list assuming that it was going to be for you. Yeah, I mean, does it have the word Titans in it? You know I'm all about this. <laughs> Brian, notorious fan of Tennessee football. Of course, yeah, that's that's it. No, actually, it's, it's, old, it's elder Greek gods is what it is. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yeah. This is written by Kevin Scott, with pencils by Jose Luis, inks by Jonas Trinidade, colors by Rex Locus, and letters by Carlos M. Mangual. Uh, and it's Titans dealing with uh, <coughs> past coming back to haunt them. I mean, I feel like that's a very, yeah. very like traditionally, hey, you want to jump on a Titans book? Here's a good one to jump on kind of pitch. Uh, Kevin Scott wrote Shadow Service recently for Vault, which I dug. So I will also honestly be checking this one out. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Over at Image, mm-hmm. we have Primordial number one, written by Jeff Lemire, art by Andrea Sorrentino, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Steve Wands. Do you remember which book this is, Brian? Um, hang on just a second, because I, I can tell you remember that, uh, because this is, um, you just said it. Who was it? Jeff Lemire, right? Yep. Um, okay, what is it? I can't This remember. is the one about uh, all the animals that had been sent into space as part of the space race. Right. What if they had survived yeah. and been changed and came back? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, because this is the exact same team that did Gideon Falls, right? Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we also have Eternals, Thanos Rises one shot, which is... We have two skip months for the Kieran Gillen Eternals ongoing, but this is very much part of that story. Written by Kieran Gillen, with art by Dustin Weaver, colors by Matthew Wilson, and letters and design by Clayton Cowles. Uh, Thanos is back, baby! (sighs) And also, if you're reading Thor, like, Thanos figures in there, and I'm really curious to see if these connect up at all. 
Um, but we got like a big shakeup for the eternal status quo at the end of the first arc. So I'm super curious to see like what groundwork this lays. Mm -hmm. And the last one, uh, Brian's favorite event to read all of the tie-ins to, but none of the core material for. <laughs> Last Annihilation, Wakanda, one shot. Written by Evan Narciss, with art by Herman Peralta, colors by Jesus Abertov, and letters by Corey Pettit. Look, anything Evan Narciss writes, I'm, I'm, I'm there. Uh, he did that world, not world of Wakanda, he did the uh book that sort of tied in the history of was it the killmonger book it may have been the killmonger book but he did some of the early work with Tanahisi coates on building out that wakandan world oh, was that rise of black panther oh that was it yes thank you yeah uh he also was one of the writers who contributed to spider-man miles morales on the ps5 so good so good i played that thing in like a week <laughs> yeah it's so good incredible uh, yeah by the way I, I just want to point out it's not my fault that i'm just reading the tie-ins those are all the books that i'm already getting <laughs> no i know it's yeah. just fun to harass you for no, I, yeah, of course it is um but as always in addition to harassing brian we would like to thank chase parker for our intro voiceover panelology is a member of the certain pov network if you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, go to certainpov.com. You can visit us at panelologypodcast.com, support us at patreon.com slash panelology, get merch at bit.ly slash panelologymerch, capital P, capital M, or send us your questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelologymailbag, capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. And I'm Brian. Go read comics. CPOV. Certain POV dot com.